0: Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show, we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today, we will be telling one of the 21 Tales by Rudyard Kipling. While a problematic writer for many reasons, we hope you enjoy this relatively harmless little tale. A Matter of Fact by Rudyard Kipling And if ye doubt the tale I tell, steer through the South Pacific swell. Go where the branching coral hives, unending strife of endless lives. Where leagued about the wilded boat, the rainbow jellies fill and float. And lilting where the lava lingers, the starfish trips on all her fingers. Where neath his myriad spines a shock, the sea-egg ripples down the rock. An orange wander dimly guessed from darkness where the cutlass rest, moored o'er the darker deeps that hide the blind white sea-snake and his bride, who, drowsing, knows the long-lost ships, let down through the darkness to their lips, in the matter of one compass. Once a priest, always a priest. Once a mason always a mason, but once a journalist, always and for ever a journalist. There were three of us, all newspaper men, the only passengers on a little tramp steamer that ran where her owners told her to go. She'd once been in the Beaglebau iron ore business, had been lent to the Spanish government for services at Manila, and was ending her services in the Cape Down coolie trade. With occasional trips to Madagascar and even as far as England... We found her going to Southampton in ballast and shipped in her because the fares were nominal. There was Keller of an American newspaper on his way back to the States from palace executions in Madagascar. There was a burly half Dutchman called Zoyland who owned and edited a paper up country near Johannesburg and there was myself, who had solemnly put away all journalism vowing to forget that I had ever known the difference between an imprint and a stereo advertisement. Ten minutes after Keller spoke to me, as the Rathmines cleared Cape Town, I had forgotten the aloofness I desired to feign, and was in heated discussion on the immorality of expanding telegrams beyond a certain fixed point. Then Zoyland came out of his cabin, and we were all at home instantly because we were men of the same profession, needing no introduction. We annexed the boat formally, broke open the passengers' bathroom door on the Manila lines. The Dons do not wash, cleaned out the orange peel and cigar ends at the bottom of the bath, hired Alaska to shave us throughout the voyage, and then asked each other's names. Three ordinary men would have quarrelled through sheer boredom before they reached Southampton. We by virtue of our craft, were anything but ordinary men. A large percentage of the tale of the world, the thirty-nine that cannot be told to ladies and the one that can, are commonly property coming of a common stock. We told them all, as a matter of form, with all their local and specific variants, which are surprising... Then came in the intervals of steady card play more personal histories of adventure and things seen and suffered. Panics among white folk when the blind terror ran from man to man on the Brooklyn Bridge and the people crushed each other to death. They knew not why. Fires and faces that opened and shut their mouths horribly at red hot window frames. Wrecks in frost and snow reported from the sleet sheathed rescue tug at the risk of frostbite. Long rides after diamond thieves, skirmishes on the veld and in municipal communities with the Boers. Glimpses of lazy, tangled cape politics and the mule rule in the Transvaal card tales, horse tales, woman tales, by the score and the half hundred, till the first mate, who had been more than us all put together, but lacked words to clothe his tales with, sat opened mouth far into the dawn. When the tales were done, we picked up cards, till a curious hand or a chance remark made one or other of us say, That reminds me of a man who, or a business with... And the anecdotes would continue while the Rathmines kicked her way northward through the warm water. In the morning of one specially warm night, we three were sitting immediately in front of the wheelhouse, where an old Swedish boatswain whom we called Frithjof the Dane was at the wheel, pretending that he could not hear our stories. Once or twice Frithiof spun the spokes curiously and Keller lifted his head from a long chair and asked, What is it? Can't you get any steerage way on her? There is a feel in the water," said Frithiof, "that I cannot understand. I think that we run down hills or something. She steers bad this morning. Nobody seems to know the laws that govern the pulse of the big waters. Sometimes even a landsman can tell that the solid ocean is a tilt, and that the ship is working herself up at a long unseen slope. And sometimes the captain says when neither full steam nor fair wind justifies the length of a day's run, and the ship is sagging downhill. "'But how these ups and downs come about has not yet been settled authoritatively.' "'No, it is a following sea,' said Frithioff. "'And with a following sea you shall not get a good steerage way.' "'The sea was as smooth as a duck pond except for a regular oily swell.' As I looked over the side to see where it might be following us from, the sun rose in a perfectly clear sky and struck the water with its light so sharply that it seemed as though the sea should clang like a burnished gong. The wake of the screw and the little white snake cut by the log line hanging over the stern were the only marks on the water as far as the eye could reach. "'Keller rolled out of his chair and went afar to get a pineapple "'from the ripening stock that was hung inside the after awning. "'The log-line has got tired of swimming. "'It's coming home,' he drawled. "'What?' said Frithiof, his voice jumping several octaves. "'Coming home,' Keller repeated, leaning over the stern. "'I ran to his side and saw the log-line, "'which till then had been drawn tense over the stern railing, "'slacken, loop, and coming up off the port quarter.' Frithiof called up the speaking tube to the bridge, and the bridge answered, Yes, nine knots. Then Frithiof spoke again, and the answer was, What do you want of the skipper? And Frithiof bellowed, Call him up! By this time, Zoyland, Keller, and myself had caught something of Frithiof's excitement, for any emotion on shipboard is most contagious. The captain ran out of his cabin and spoke to Frithiof, looked at the log line, "'Jumped on the bridge, and in a minute we felt the steamer swing round as Frithiof turned her. "'Going back to Cape Town?' said Keller. Frithiof did not answer, but tore away at the wheel. "'Then he beckoned us three to help, and we held the wheel down till the Rathmines answered it, "'and we found ourselves looking into the white of our own wake, "'with the still, oily sea tearing past our bows, "'that we were not going more than half a steam ahead. "'The captain stretched out his arms from the bridge and shouted, A minute later I would have given a great deal to have shouted too, for one half of the sea seemed to shoulder itself above the other half and came on in the shape of a hill. There was neither crest, comb nor curl to it, nothing but black water with little waves chasing each other about the flanks. I saw it stream past and on a level with the Rathmine's plates before the steamer hove up her bulk to rise, and I argued that this would be the last of all earthly voyages for me. Then we lifted for ever and ever and ever till I heard Keller saying in my ear, "'The bowels of the deep! Good Lord!' And the rathmine stood poised, her screw racing and drumming on the slope of the hollow that stretched downwards for a good half a mile. We went down the hollow, nose under for the most part, and the air smelt wet and muddy like that of an emptied aquarium. There was a second hill to climb, I saw that much.' The water came aboard and carried me aft till it jammed me against the wheelhouse door, and before I could catch breath or clear my eyes again, we were rolling to and fro in the torn water, with the scuppers pouring like eaves into a thunderstorm. There were three waves, said Keller, and the stockholds flooded. The firemen were on deck, waiting, apparently, to be drowned. The engineer came and dragged them below, and the crew, gasping, began to work the clumsy board of the trade pumps. That showed nothing serious, and when I understood that the Rath mines were really on the water and not beneath it, I asked what had happened. The captain says it was a blow-up under the sea, a volcano, said Keller. It hasn't warmed anything, I said. I was feeling bitterly cold, and cold was almost unknown in those waters. I went below to change my clothes, and when I came up, everything was wiped out in a clinging white fog. Are there going to be any more surprises, said Keller to the captain. ''Be thankful you're alive, gentlemen. That's a tidal wave thrown up by a volcano. Probably the bottom of the sea has been lifted up a few feet somewhere or other. I can't quite understand this cold spell. Our sea thermometer says the surface water is 44 degrees and it should be 68 at least.'' ''It's abominable,'' said Keller, shivering. ''But haven't you better attend to the foghorn?'' ''It seems to me that I heard something.'' ''Heard? Good heavens!'' said the captain from the bridge. ''I should think you did.'' he pulled the string of our foghorn which was a weak one it sputtered and choked because the stokehold was full of water and the fires were half drowned and at the last gave out a moan it was answered from the fog by one of the most appalling steam sirens I'd ever heard Keller turned white as I did the fog, the cold fog was upon us and any man may be forgiven for fear of a death he cannot see give her steam there "'said the captain to the engine room. "'Steam for the whistle, if you have to go dead slow.' "'We bellowed again, and the damp dripped off the awnings on the deck "'as we listened for the reply. "'It seemed to be astern this time, but much nearer than before. "'The Pembroke Castle is on us,' said Keller. "'And then viciously, "'Well, thank God we shall sink her too.' "'It's a side-wheel steamer,' I whispered. "'Can't you hear the paddles?' This time we whistled and roared till the steam gave out, and the answer nearly deafened us. There was a sound of frantic threshing in the water, apparently about 50 yards away, and something shot past the whiteness that looked as though it was grey and red. The Pembroke Castle, bottom up, said Keller, who, being a journalist, always sought for explanations. That's the colours of a castle liner. We're in for a big thing. "'The sea is bewitched,' said Frithiof from the wheelhouse. "'There are two steamers. "'Another siren sounded on our bow, "'and the little steamer rolled in the wash of something that had passed unseen. "'We're evidently in the middle of a fleet,' said Keller quietly. "'If one doesn't run us down, the other will. <sighs> "'What a creation is that?' "'I sniffed, but there was a poisonous, rank smell in the cold air. A smell that I had smelt before.' If I was on land, I should say it was an alligator. It smells like musk, I answered. Not ten thousand alligators could make that smell, said Zoyland. I have smelt them. Bewitched, bewitched, said Frithioff. The sea is turning upside down and we are walking along the bottom. Again, the Rathmine mine rolled into the wash of some unseen ship and a silver-grey wave broke over the bow, leaving on the deck a sheet of sediment, the grey broth that has its place in the fathomless depths of the sea. A sprinkling of the wave fell on my face, and it was so cold that it stung as boiling water stings. The dead and most untouched deep water of the sea has been heaved to the top by the submarine volcano, the chill, still water that kills all life and smells of desolation and emptiness. We did not need either the blinding fog or that indescribable smell of musk to make us unhappy. We were shivering with cold and wretchedness where we stood. The hot air on the cold water makes this fog, said the captain. It ought to clear in a little time. Whistle and let's get out of it, said Keller. The captain whistled again and far and far astern the invisible twin steam sirens answered us. That blasting shriek grew louder till at last it seemed to tear out of the fog just above our quarter. But I cowered while the rathmine plunged bows under a double swell that crossed. No more said Frithiof. It is no good any more. Let us get away in the name of God. Now, if a torpedo- boat with the city of Paris siren went mad and broke her moorings and hired a friend to help her, it's just conceivable that we might be carried as we are now. "'Otherwise, this thing is...' The last words died on Keller's lips. His eyes began to start from his head. His jaw fell some six or seven feet above the port bulwarks framed in the fog, and as utterly unsupported as the full moon hung a face. It was not human, and it certainly was not animal, for it did not belong to this earth as known to man. The mouth was open revealing a ridiculously tiny tongue, as absurd as the tongue of an elephant. There were tense wrinkles of white skin at the angles of the drawn lips, white feelers like those of a barbel sprung from the lower jaw, and there was no sign of teeth within the mouth. But the horror of the face lay in the eyes, for those were sightless, white in sockets, as white as scraped bone and blind. Yet for all this, the face wrinkled as the mask of a lion is drawn in Assyrian sculpture. It was alive with rage and terror. One long, white femur touched our bulwarks. Then the face disappeared with the swiftness of a blind worm popping into its burrow. And the next thing that I'd remember is my own voice in my own ear saying gravely to the mainmast, But the air bladder ought to have been forced out of its mouth, you know. Keller came up to me, ashy white. He put his hand into his pocket, took a cigar, bit it, dropped it, thrust his shaking thumb into his mouth and mumbled, The giant gospery and the raining frogs. Give me a light! Give me a light! Say, give me a light! A little bead of blood dropped from his thumb joint. I respected the motive, though the manifestation was absurd. Stop You'll bite your thumb off, I said, and Keller laughed brokenly as he picked up his cigar. Only Zoyland, leaning over the port bulwark, seemed self-possessed. He declared later that he was very sick. We've seen it, he said, turning around. That is it. What? said Keller, chewing the unlighted cigar. As he spoke, the fog was blown into shreds and he saw the sea grey with mud rolling on every side of us, empty of all life. Then, in one spot, it bubbled and became like the pot of ointment the Bible speaks of. From that wide ringed bubble, a thing came up a grey and red thing with a neck, a thing that bellowed and writhed in pain. Frithiof drew in his breath and held it till the red letters of the ship's name woven across his jersey straggled and opened out as though they had been tight, badly set. Then he said with a little cluck in his throat, "'Ah, me, it is blind. "'Hurilla, That thing is blind!' And a murmur of pity went through us all, for we could see that the thing on the water was blind and in pain. Something had gashed and cut the great sides cruelly, and the blood was spurting out. The grey ooze of the undermost sea lay in the monstrous wrinkles of the back and poured away in sluices.' The blind, white head flung back and battered the wounds, and the body in its torment rose clear of the red and grey waves till we saw a pair of quivering shoulders streaked with weed and rough with shells, but as white in the clear spaces as the hairless, maneless, blind, toothless head. Afterwards came a dot on the horizon, and the sound of a shrill scream... And it was as though a shuttle shot all across the sea in one breath, and a second head and neck tore through the levels, driving a whispering wall of water to right and left. The two things met, the one untouched and the other in its death throw. Male and female, we said, the female coming to the male. She circled round him, bellowing and laid her neck across the curve of his great turtle back. And he disappeared underwater for an instant, but flung up again, grunting in agony while the blood ran. Once the entire head and neck shot clear of the water and stiffened, I heard Keller saying as though he was watching a street accident, Give him air, for God's sake, give him air! Then the death struggle began, with crampings and twistings and jerkings of the white bulk to and fro, till our little steamer rolled again, and each gray wave coated her plate with the gray slime the sun was clear and there was no wind and we watched the whole crew stoke us and all in wonder and pity but chiefly pity the thing was so helpless and safe for its mate so alone no human eye should have beheld him It was monstrous and indecent to exhibit him there in the trade waters between atlas degrees of latitude. He had been spewed up, mangled and dying from his rest on sea floor, where he might have lived till the judgment day, and we saw the tides of his life go from him as an angry tide goes out across rocks in the teeth of a landward gale. His mate lay rocking on the water a little distance off, bellowing continually and the smell of musk came down upon the ship making us cough. At last the battle for life ended in a batter of coloured seas. We saw the writhing neck fall like a flail the cascade turn sideways showing the glint of a white belly and the inset of a gigantic hind leg or flipper. Then all sank and sea boiled over it, while the mate swam around and around, darting her head in every direction. Though we might have feared that she would attack the steamer, no power on earth could have drawn any one of us from our places that hour. We watched, holding our breaths. The mate paused in her search. We could hear the wash, Beating along her sides, reared her neck as high as she could reach, blind and lonely in all that loneliness of the sea, and sent one desperate bellow booming across the swells as an oyster shell skips across a pond. Then she made off to the westward, the sun shining on the white head and the wake behind it till nothing was left to see but a little pinpoint of silver on the horizon we stood on our course again and the wrath mines coated with the sea sediment from bow to stern looked like a ship made gray with terror we must pull our notes was the first coherent remark from keller we three trained journalists we hold absolutely the biggest scoop on record start fair i objected to this "'Nothing is gained by collaboration in journalism when all deal with the same facts.' "'So we went to work, each according to his own lights. "'Keller triple-headed his account, talking about our gallant captain, "'and wound up with an allusion to an American enterprise, "'in that it was a citizen of Dayton, Ohio, that had seen the sea serpent. "'This sort of thing would have discredited the creation.' much more a mere sea tale, but as a specimen of the picture-writing of a half-civilised people, it was very interesting. Zoyland took a heavy column and a half, giving approximate lengths and breadths, and the whole list of crew whom he had sworn on oath to testify to his facts. There was nothing fantastic or flamboyant in Zoyland. I wrote three-quarters of a leaded bourgeois column, roughly speaking, and refrained from putting any journalese into it for reasons that had begun to appear to me. Keller was insolent with joy. He was going to cable from Southampton to the New York world, mail his account to America on the same day, paralyze London with his three columns of loosely knitted headlines, and generally efface the earth. "'You'll see how I work for a big scoop when I get it,' he said. "'Is this your first visit to England?' I asked. "'Yes,' said he. "'You don't seem to appreciate the beauty of our scoop,' "'It's pyramidal, the death of the sea serpent. "'Good heavens alive, man! "'It's the biggest thing ever vouchsafed to a paper! "'Curious to think that it will never appear in any paper, isn't it?' "'I said. Zoyland was near me, and he nodded quickly. "'What do you mean?' said Keller. "'If you're enough of a Britisher to throw this thing away, I shan't. "'I thought you were a newspaper man.' "'I am. That's why I know. "'Don't be an ass, Keller.' "'Remember, I'm 700 years your senior, "'and what your grandchildren may learn 500 years hence "'I learned from my grandfathers about 500 years ago. "'You won't do it because you can't.' "'The conversation was held in open sea "'where everything seems possible.' Some hundred miles from Southampton we passed the needles light at dawn, and the lifting day showed the stucco villas on the green and the awful orderliness of England, line upon line, wall upon wall, solid stone dock and monolithic pier. We waited an hour in the customs shed, and there was ample time for the effect to soak in. Now, Keller, you face the music. The Havel goes out today... ''Mail by her and I'll take you to the telegraph office,'' I said. I heard Keller gasp as the influence of the land closed about him, cowing him as they say Newmarket Health cows a young horse unused to open courses. I'll, ''I want to retouch my stuff. Suppose we wait till we get to London,'' he said. Zoyland, by the way, had torn up his own account and thrown it overboard by morning early. His reasons were many.'' train keller began to revise his copy and every time that he looked at the trim little fields of red villas and the embankments of the line the blue pencil plunged remorselessly through the slips he appeared to have dredged the dictionary for adjectives i could think of none that he had not used yet he was a perfectly sound poker player and never showed more cards than were sufficient to take the pool aren't you going to leave him a single bellow i asked sympathetically "'Remember, everything goes in the States, "'from a trouser-button to a double-eagle. "'That's just the curse of it,' said Keller below his breath. "'We've played em for suckers so often "'that when it comes to the golden truth. "'I'd like to try this on a London paper. "'You have first call there, though. "'Not in the least. "'I'm not touching the thing in your papers. "'I shall be happy to leave em all to you. "'But surely you'll cable it home?' "'No.' "'Not if I can make the scoop here and see the Britishers sit up. "'You won't do it with three columns of slushy headline, believe me. "'They don't sit up as quickly as some people.' "'I'm beginning to think that, too. "'Does nothing make any difference in this country?' he said, looking out of the window. "'How old is that farmhouse?' "'New. Can't be more than two hundred years at the most.' Hmm. "'Fields, too? That hedge there must have been clipped for about eighty years.' Labour cheap, eh? Pretty much. Well, I suppose you'd like to try the times, wouldn't you? No, said Keller, looking at Winchester Cathedral. Might as well try to electrify a haystack and think that the world would take three columns and ask for more with illustrations, too. It's sickening. But the times might, I began. Keller flung his paper across the carriage, and it opened in an austere majesty of solid type, opened with the crackle of an encyclopedia. "'Might! You might work your way through the bow plates of a cruiser. Look at that first page!' "'It strikes you that way, does it?' I said. "'Then I'd recommend you to try a light and frivolous journal. "'With a thing like this of mine, of ours. It's sacred history!' I showed him a paper which I conceived would be after his own heart, in that it was modelled on American lines. That's homey, he said, but it's not the real thing. Now I should be like one of those fat old Times columns. Probably there'd be a bishop in the office, though. When we reached London, Keller disappeared in the direction of the stand. What his experiences may have been, I cannot tell, but it seemed that he invaded the office of an evening paper at 11.45 a.m. I told him that English editors were more idle at that hour, and mentioned my name as that of a witness to the truths of his story. "'I was nearly fired out,' he said furiously at lunch. "'As soon as I mentioned you, the old man said that I was to tell you that they didn't want any more of your practical jokes, and that you knew the hours to call if you had anything to sell.' and that they'd see you condemned before they helped to puff one of your infernal yarns in advance. Say, what record do you hold for truth in this country, anyway? A beauty. You ran up against it, that's all. Why don't you leave the English papers alone and cable to New York? Everything goes over there. Can't you see that's just why? He repeated. I saw it a long time ago. You don't intend to cable, then? Yes, I do. He answered in the over-emphatic voice of one who does not know his own mind. That afternoon I walked him abroad and about, over the streets that run between the pavements like channels of grooved and tongued lava over the bridges that are made of enduring stone, through the subways floored and sided with yard-thick concrete, between houses that are never rebuilt, and by river-steps hewn, to the eye, from the living rock. A black fog chases us to Westminster Abbey, and standing there in the darkness, I could hear the wings of the dead century circling round the head of Litchfield. A. Keller, a journalist of Dayton, Ohio, USA, whose mission it was to make the Britishers sit up. He stumbled, gasping into the thick gloom, and the roar of the traffic came to his bewildered ears. Let's go to the telegraph office and cable, I said. Can't you hear the New York world crying for news of the great sea serpent, blind, white, and smelling of musk, stricken to death by a submarine volcano and assisted by his loving wife to die in mid-ocean as visualized by the American citizen? The breezy, newsy, brainy newspaper man of Dayton, Ohio. Keller was a Princeton man, and he seemed to need encouragement. you got me on your own ground,' said he, tugging at his overcoat pockets. He pulled out his copy with the cable forms, for he had written out his telegram, and put them all into my hands, groaning. "A pass. If I'd come to your cursed country, if I'd send it off at Southampton, if I ever get you west— Never mind, Keller, it isn't your fault. It's the fault of your country. If you had been seven hundred years older, you'd have done what I'm going to do. And what are you going to do? Tell it as a lie. Fiction! This with the full-blooded disgust of a journalist for the illegitimate branch of the profession. You can call it that if you like. I shall call it a lie. And a lie it has become. For truth is a naked lady. And if by accident she is drawn up from the bottom of the sea, it behooves a gentleman either to give her a print petticoat or to turn his face to the wall and vow that he did not see. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject that you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page, and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.